Morning, everyone. We're going to go ahead and uh, get started with our lesson this morning. If you can have a seat, I have uh, outlines in the back. Uh, grab one uh, before you take a seat. We begin a new series on uh, the life of King Hezekiah. Uh, we'll take five weeks uh, to study his, uh, his life. Um, we have much to cover, uh, so let's go ahead and uh, seek the Lord's help. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time that we could gather together as your people to study your word. Um, we need your help. Holy Spirit, illumine uh, your word. Open our hearts and minds uh, to see these glorious truths, uh, not only to receive them, but to uh, live them out in the coming days. Uh, help me as I teach and help us as we learn together. In Christ's holy name I pray. Amen. So I, d I have provided an outline. Uh, we will follow that along as we uh, study uh, the life of Hezekiah. Uh, so this morning we will uh, examine 2 uh, Chronicles chapter 29, um, looking at the revival that God uh, begins, had begun through this, uh, through this king. Just to give you a context of this historical narrative that we will be examining, uh, the events before us uh, took place in the mid-8th to late 7th century BC. It's about 200 years after the, the fall uh, or rather after the division of the unified kingdom of Israel into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Uh, both uh, Israel and Judah had uh, fallen into apostasy. Uh, they had uh, strayed from worshiping Yahweh, worshiping the, uh, the pagan gods of the surrounding kingdoms. And rightly, in, uh, in judgment from God, they had experienced... Uh, not just spiritual decline, but also political and military decline. Um, by now, Assyria is the dominant power. It had uh, conquered the surrounding nations, uh, and it was right at the doorstep of Judah, uh, about to invade Judah, as we will examine in, in the coming weeks. Uh, just a few things about the book of Chronicles itself as we will be spending uh, the next two weeks in this, in this historical narrative. Commentator H.G.M. Williamson says, in the Hebrew can canon, the first and second Chronicles were counted as a single book. They were called the Dibre Hayamim, meaning the, end of the, uh, the events of the days or annals. So this expression occurs quite frequently in the Old Testament, end quote. Uh, this commentator, he dates the, the book of Chronicles as having been written mid-4th century B.C. Now, uh, commentators, they vary as far as the dating of this book as early as 515 B.C. to as late as 250 B.C. Uh, Jewish tradition... Uh, attributes Ezra as having written uh, this historical narrative. And certain Old Testament uh, scholars also agree with, uh, with that tradition. And they base this uh, on the parallel there is between the writings of Ezra 
and the writings of the Chronicler, where both authors, they focus on temple worship, a return to temple worship, rebuilding the temple, uh, uh, Levitical priestly uh, uh, services in the temple. So they see some parallel between Ezra and the author of, uh, of Chronicles. That's why they attribute Ezra as being the, uh, the author. If this indeed be the case, either way, whether it be an early date or a, a late date, uh, the setting for the writing of Chronicles is the post-exilic period. By now, uh, Judah has been in captivity uh, for many years uh, at the hands of the Babylonians and eventually uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, which conquers Babylon. Uh, but, but the uh, the focus of the chronicler, as he gives us this narrative, and especially the the details of temple worship and the the cleansing, the consecration of the temple, is because he has his. Uh, his, his early audience, his immediate audience in mind. They have returned from captivity or returning from captivity and they're rebuilding the temple and they're uh, uh, getting back to their roots of worship of Yahweh. So he has his, this audience in mind and it has bearing for us even this very day. Uh, now let's look at the uh, passage itself. There are four main points I would uh, examine this morning. The first being the righteous start uh, to this king, to King Hezekiah. And then we will examine the parallel that we see between uh, Hezekiah's reign and his predecessor Solomon's reign. Uh, third, we will see the priority that Hezekiah places on worship. Uh, namely, uh, worship of Yahweh in the, at the temple in Jerusalem. And lastly, uh, we will see uh, the worship service itself that takes place after the, the temple is cleansed and consecrated for worship, and we'll end with uh, application. Um, so let's uh, look at, let's start with how Hezekiah begins his reign. We read in Second Chronicles chapter 29, uh, verse 2, that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. Now his childhood was not uh, very good. His father was Ahaz. He was a wicked man. Uh, and his wickedness in, is seen in, in a few ways. He worshipped the Baals. He had altars uh, towards the pagan gods in several places throughout the land. Uh, he began, he indulged in uh, the worship of Molech, which involves child sacrifice. So he sacrificed his own sons on the altar of this pagan god, Molech. And ultimately, he closed the temple for worship and prohibited temple worship in Jerusalem. And we read about that in Second Chronicles chapter 28, uh, starting in verse 2 regarding Ahaz, he walked in the ways of the king of Israel, made metal images for Baal, offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom, burned his sons as an offering, and he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and under every green tree. And scrolling down to verse 24, he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. So, um, that is, the, uh, uh, that is the testimony of scripture on, on Hahaz, uh, on how he uh, 
ruled and how he led the nation into idolatry by his own uh, idolatrous practices. Jewish historian uh, uh, Josephus says this of Ahaz, the king was so sottish and thoughtless of what was for his own good, worshiping the, Syr the Syrian gods, began to honor the gods of the Assyrians, and he seemed more desirous to honor any other gods than his own paternal and true God, whose anger was the cause of his defeat. He proceeded to such a degree of despot and contempt of God's worship that he shut up the temple entirely and forbade them to bring in the appointed sacrifices, end quote. Now, Hezekiah was witness to all of this. He began his reign as a co-regent, uh, co-ruler with his father Ahaz, and he did this for 14 years before he became the sole ruler uh, uh, of the kingdom of Judah. Uh, the, his uh, uh, co-regency began in 729 BC, and when his father ultimately died, uh, his sole rulership began in 715 BC. So how was Hezekiah influenced to become the man that we will see, uh, that we will examine for the next few weeks? Obviously, Ahaz was not uh, a good example. If anything, Ahaz was an example of what, to, what not to do in terms of spiritual or personal piety for his son. But we're told that there are certain prophets who ministered during the reign of Ahaz. Isaiah uh, and Hosea, they began their ministry uh, during the time of Ahaz's, uh, rather Hezekiah's great-grandfather Uzziah. And Micah began his ministry during the reign of uh, Hezekiah's uh, grandfather Jotham. And these three prophets, they continued their ministry during the reigns of Hezekiah's grandfather, his father, and they continued their ministry, prophetic ministry, during the reign of King Ahaz. Now, uh, Isaiah was known as the prophet to the royal court, so he had immediate and direct audience with King Hezekiah. And he was, uh, he became King Hezekiah's confidant and counselor, spiritual counselor, and had uh, uh, a significant influence on this young man as he began his rule. And uh, Hosea and Micah, on the other hand, were God's prophets to minister to the people of Judah. And they had an extensive ministry uh, to the people of Judah during uh, the reign of Ahaz. Turn with me to uh, Jeremiah chapter 26, verses 18 through 19. We'll look at that briefly. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 26, verses 18 through 19. Here, um, uh, Jeremiah comments on the influence of Micah on Hezekiah's uh, 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 reign and how Hezekiah had a high regard for for the prophet Micah. Starting in verse 19, did Hezekiah, uh, actually starting in verse 18, sorry. Micah of Moreseth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah and said to all the people of Judah, thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem 
shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah king of Judah and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring disaster on, upon ourselves. So here we see uh, Hezekiah, even though prophet Micah had prophesied and declared judgment on king, thank you, on the, on the nation for their wickedness, he still responded favorably to Hezekiah's ministry and he understood that Hezekiah was uh, pronouncing such judgment rightly because of the nation's idolatry and he repented and he brought about, was used of the Lord to bring about a revival among his people. So we see God's grace prevalent, prevailing on Hezekiah in spite of the ungodly influence of his father Ahaz. It's God's grace that, uh, that empowers Hezekiah to do all the things that he does, we will see in the coming weeks. So now let's examine the second main point that, uh, that we have is that there's the parallel between the reign of King Hezekiah and his predecessor, King Solomon. Uh, biblical scholars, uh, Dillard, Williamson, and Wilcock, they see the chronicler as portraying Hezekiah as being a second Solomon. And uh, on examining the passages uh, involving the reign of Solomon and Hezekiah, there were five, uh, uh, five parallels that I saw here, that I see here. Uh, the first one, and the most important one, is that the Lord was with him, the presence of God with King Hezekiah. In 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 7, we read regarding Hezekiah, and the Lord was with him wherever he went, and he prospered. The same was sent, uh, said of King Solomon in 2 Chronicles, and the Lord his God was with him and made him exceeding, exceedingly great. So the Lord's presence was key to Hezekiah's personal piety and also his leadership in bringing about revival and reformation in the land. The second parallel between these two kings are their concern and priority of, the, of temple worship of Yahweh. In 2 Chronicles 29, verse 3, let's uh, look at that. <clears throat> in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. So early on, within the first month of his reign, he reopens the temple that was shut down by his father, Ahaz, and he begins the process of repairing and cleansing the temple for worship. The same was said of Solomon. He, he purposed to build the temple for the name of the Lord in Second Chronicles. The third parallel is they both dedicate the temple. Solomon, his predecessor, he builds the temple and he initially inaugurates and dedicates the temple to the Lord. Here, Hezekiah, he repairs the temple, he consecrates it, and he rededicates it for, for temple worship. Uh, the fourth parallel is both Solomon and Hezekiah are concerned not only for their own personal piety, but that of the nation. They gather the people together. They bring about an, as an assembly and guide them and lead them towards worship of Yahweh. 
and the last parallel between these two, two kings are that they involve the priestly line, the, the priests and the Levites in temple, temple worship, and this is in accordance with the commandment of the Lord. So let's look at, now let's look at the priority that, um, that King Hezekiah places on worship in his kingdom. And we'll be looking at that starting in verses 3 to verse 19. <clears throat> so, as he ascends to the throne, he's a young man. He's 25 years old. He's got Assyria as the dominant power in the region. They've conquered their, the surrounding nations. The uh, northern kingdom of Israel has ceased to exist as a nation, having been conquered by Syria. So this was a real threat. And uh, the economy was not doing so well either because uh, the, uh, the kingdom of Judah had become a vassal state to Assyria under the reign of his, of his father Ahaz. So they were paying an exuberant amount of tribute to Assyria. So rightly, his, prior, his priority could, could have been the economy that needed to be addressed, the military, he needed to strengthen the military, but that was not so. His priority became the worship of Yahweh. He rightly saw that the root cause of all the problems in, in his nation is that they had deviated from the worship of Yahweh, and he sought to, to rectify that, to make a change. And he does that in, in a very methodical way. The first thing he does is he resurrects temple worship. And then he reinstitutes the Levitical and priestly line of temple, in, in, of temple service. Now, King Hezekiah understood uh, that the temple was the rightful place, God's designated place of worship. In answer to Solomon's prayer, when Solomon dedicated the temple, uh, God said, I have heard your prayer, and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. So Hezekiah, in bringing about this revival, he intended to reestablish the temple as the place of corporate worship for the people of God. Let's look at verses uh, 5 through 9. Here, Hezekiah is not only giving a speech uh, to the Levites. He, after assembling and gathering all the Levites and the priests, he not only gives the, it's not just giving a speech, the uh, one of the commentators calls it a Levitical sermon. I'm going to read this here, uh, starting in verse 5. After assembling them in the, in the square on the east, he says to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the, the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. They also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps and have burnt, burnt incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord has come upon Judah and Jerusalem and he has made them an object of horror, of astonishment and of hissing as you see with your own eyes. Our fathers have fallen by the sword, 
and our sons and daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. So the first thing he does in this Levitical sermon is that he calls upon the, uh, the priests and the Levites to consecrate themselves, to set themselves apart for ministry in the temple again. And the second thing he does is that he pronounces or he makes a statement of the unfaithfulness, the disobedience, uh, not only of his late father Ahaz, but of the kings who had preceded him. It is a long line of disobedience and apostasy that had, has brought about God's judgment on this land. And then he, he says that because of the, of the disobedience of the, of the rulers and of the people, divine retribution had fallen upon the land and on its people. If you recall back during King Ahaz's reign, just in one battle alone, 120,000 men of Judah were slain because they went to war against their own brethren, the northern king of, kingdom of Israel. And because of the wickedness of one man, uh, such, uh, there was such loss of life and there was such sorrow among the people. And even the Edomites had, had conquered uh, and had taken away some of their uh, people into captivity. The Philistines had invaded their land and had uh, re-inhabited some of the villages that were part of the kingdom of Judah. And all of this had occurred uh, as a result of judgment from the Lord. Uh, and in verse 10, uh, Hezekiah, he makes a covenant with the Lord. Now, this is not a renewal of the national covenant that God had made with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, but rather uh, King Hezekiah takes a solemn oath uh, to fulfill his royal obligations as ruler and king to make a change, to bring about this, uh, uh, this religious reform in the land. <clears throat> if you look at verses 12 through 14, there are 14 names that are listed. Uh, that heed, that uh, heed the call of Hezekiah to come and consecrate themselves. Now, there are, uh, these 14 names represent all the families of the Levites. There are two representatives from each of the families, respective families. You have the families of Kohath, Merari, Gershon, and Elizaphan, and then you have the clans of Asap, uh, Heman, and Juduthan, now, these uh, latter three clans, they represent the musicians from the tribes of Levi. So we see here a unified response. All the clans, the families of the tribe of, uh, of Levi, they heed the call of their king, and they obey his call to consecrate themselves and to begin the cleansing of the temple. <clears throat> The Hebrew word that is used for uh, uh, consecrate is kadash. It means to set apart, to declare holy, and to purify, and it conveys the same meaning as the word sanctify. Richard, uh, Richard Pratt comments, the Mosaic law offered detailed instructions for the consecration of priests and Levites. These rituals of consecration symbolized God setting apart priests and Levites from ordinary occupations to perform the service of the tabernacle of the tabernacle and temple. In fact, the priests were anointed with the same oil as the tabernacle furniture, thereby indicating that they were to share in the same holiness of the dwelling place of God. 
So this consecration, among other things, it, uh, involved anointing with oil and also the offering of a bull as a sin offering on behalf of these priests and Levites who are, who are uh, setting themselves apart for ministry in the temple. Now note here that uh, the, the Levites and the priests, they first consecrate themselves before entering the temple and consecrating the temple. So this is representative of both a inner consecration, an inner cleansing, and an outer consecration, an outer cleansing. So it's the consecration of the heart that must, initiated by, must be initiated by God, by his spirit. Jesus rebuked the religious leaders of his day on this very matter. In Matthew chapter 23, where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the, the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. So starting in verse 16, the verse 16 says, The priest went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it, they brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it and uh, carried it to the brook Kidron. So they begin the, the consecration and the cleansing of the temple. And this process takes about 16 days. They're thorough, they're methodical, and it's also testament to how... Uh, the temple had not only fallen to disrepair, but also had experienced such um, uh, filthiness, if you will, uh, because of uh, the level of idolatry that had fallen, the nation had fallen into uh, at the hand of King Ahaz. We're told that the Levites took the unclean items from the temple to the brook Kidron. Richard Pratt comments that Kidron Valley it's a burial site, so it is, it is clean, unclean, uh, discarded as being unclean, so it was an appropriate place for these detestable things to be destroyed. So here, in, in, um, in leading uh, the Levites and commanding the Levites and the priests to consecrate and cleanse the temple, uh, Hezekiah exhibits great zeal for the Lord's house. He foreshadows a greater king, who shows great zeal for the Lord's house himself. Christ our Lord exhibited such zeal when he drove out the money changers and merchants from the temple, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now let's look at the worship service, starting in verse 20. In verse 20 we read, then Hezekiah the king rose early and gathered the officials of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. So Hezekiah asked the king, he takes the initiative in leading the nation in entering the temple and worshiping uh, uh, the, the Lord his God. He does something remarkable as the nation's shepherd. 
Hezekiah here is breaking the generational cycle of disobedience of his forefathers. King Hosiah, who was Hezekiah's great-grandfather, in his pride has, had entered the temple to burn incense, which was clearly designated for the priest to do. And in doing so, he, he violated God's command and became a leper. And next was Uzziah's son, Jotham, Hezekiah's grandfather, who never entered the temple to worship Yahweh during his reign. And of course, we know about Ahaz, Hezekiah's own father, who closed the temple for worship, and he disallowed people from temp uh, for worshiping Yahweh at the temple in Jerusalem. And he has all this history, and God, by his grace, works such a miracle in the life and heart of Hezekiah that he breaks that bondage of sinful disobedience of his forefathers. In verse 21, we read that there are seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs that were given, that were offered for a burnt offering, and the seven male goats were offered for a sin offering. The chronicler states that a sin offering is made for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. So here there is a corporate acknowledgement of sin uh, as a nation. It's not only Hezekiah uh, that had sinned against the Lord. The people as a whole had fallen into apostasy, and hence the sin offering had to be made on behalf of the whole nation. And this had to occur first. The sin offering had to occur. There had to be acknowledgement, confession, and repentance from their sin in order for there to be restor restoration of fellowship with God, in, in order for there to be reconciliation with God. The psalmist says, if I regard sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. David said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. <clears throat> verse 23, let me read verse 23 here. The, then the goats for the sin offering were brought to the king in the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. Excuse me. So the laying of hands on the male goats represented a transference of sin from the people to the animals that were, uh, that were to be sacrificed. Now, the people rightly deserved to die for their sins, yet Yahweh graciously made the provision of the sin offering. He accepts the sacrificial death of the animals on behalf of the people in atonement for their sins. Andrew Bonner, in his commentary on Leviticus, says, when the worshiper had thus simply left his sins conveyed by the laying of his hand upon the sacrifice, he stands aside. This is all his part. The treatment of the victim is the Lord's part. The happy Israelite might go home saying, I have put my hand on its head. It shall be accepted as an atonement. End quote. Let's look at verse 24 now. Having examined uh, the sin offering, let's uh, look at what is involved in the burnt offering.
And the priest slaughtered them and made a sin offering with their blood uh, on the altar to make atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering should be made for all Israel. The animals that were, uh, that were given or were made for the burnt offering were completely burnt up. They were completely consumed by fire before the Lord. One of the commentators says, the burnt offering represents the total consecration, uh, consecration of oneself to God. So the sinner who is, uh, is offering or making this burnt offering, in effect, is being totally set apart to God to walk in obedience to him. And again, in verse 24, we see that King Hezekiah and the leaders ensure that both the burnt offering and the sin offering are made not only on behalf of the people of Judah, but also the entire nation. And this includes the remnant of the northern kingdom that had not been taken away, that had not been deported by uh, the Assyrian Empire. In verses 25 through 30, we learn that as the burnt offering began, the Levites and the priests led the assembly in worship. We read here in verse 25, starting in verse 25, and he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres, according to the commandment of David and of Gad the king's seer, excuse me, and of Nathan the prophet, for the commandment was from the Lord. The Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Then, the, then Hezekiah commanded that the burnt offering be offered on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord began also. And the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. So as the burnt offering began, the Levites and the priests began uh, to play the instruments to accompany, uh, to sing to the Lord and to accompany with music uh, as this burnt offering is being uh, offered up to the Lord. And we were told again here in verse, verse 25 that this was according to the commandment of the Lord. Now this was not something that Hezekiah and the leaders of the nation came up with on their own. They were following the law of Moses. They were acting in obedience to the law of Moses and uh, they, be, they were being faithful to it. In Deuteronomy 17, God had made a provision for a future human king. That, he would, that, that would ultimately come to rule over his people. And in doing so, he had established certain stipulations and expectations of the king that he would choose to, uh, to shepherd his people. Let's look at uh, Deuteronomy 17 and ver uh, look at verses 18 through 20. Now, this was part of the laws concerning um, Israel's future king. Verse 18, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it 
he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up. Uh, scrolling down, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he, he and his children in Israel. So Hezekiah here not only knew God's holy law, he was putting it into practice in how he commanded and how he directed uh, the worship of God in the temple. So Hezekiah is applying what we, what we know to be the regulative principle of worship. Namely, it's that God's word that directs and regulates our manner of corporate worship. The Westminster Confession of Faith states, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Our PCA Book of Church Order also states, since the Holy Scriptures are the only infallible rule of faith and practice, the principles of public worship must be derived from the Bible and not, and not from any other source, end quote. It is God that we worship, so it's, it's right that only God should direct us, direct us, his covenant people, as to how we worship him. And he has done so in his revealed word to us. In verse 31, let's look at 31 here. I'll turn back here to our main passage. Then Hezekiah said, You have now consecrated yourselves to the Lord. Come near, bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. So here, after the people had consecrated themselves, after the Levites and the priests had consecrated themselves and entered the temple for worship, uh, the king uh, extends an open invitation for all the people to come and worship Yahweh. And we see here the response of the people. They readily obeyed the commandment, the commandment of their king. People will readily follow their leaders, especially when they lead for the good of their people, for the good of the people. And we see here that the people are willing to do that. And here in verse 36, lastly in verse 36, Hezekiah and, the, and all the people rejoiced because God had provided for the people, for the thing had come about suddenly. So again, we see God's gracious provision for all of this to, to take place. Let's spend the next few minutes uh, in application. Now going back to the time of Solomon, when King Solomon dedicated the temple in worship, the Shekinah glory of God descended upon the temple, the Holy of Holies, where the, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And we're told in that, uh, in that narrative that the temple was so, rather the, the glory of God was so profound that the Levites who were ministering at the time were unable to, to stay there because it was so powerful. Fast forward several generations, several hundred years, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
when Christ became God, taking on human flesh. Jesus was the Shekinah glory of God embodied in the flesh. Referring to himself, Jesus answered them, that is the Jews, when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now the Jews were thinking that Christ was referring to a, uh, the Herodian, the physical Herodian temple that was uh, in place at the time. Apostle John comments, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now there is a continuity and a discontinuity in worship among the people of God between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. You and I, when we come together for worship as we are today, uh, we don't bring a physical sacrifice with us. We don't bring a a bull, a, a lamb, or a goat to worship God. God has provided for us the Lamb, uh, capital L, Lamb. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus Christ did that for you and I on the cross, uh, doing away with the old covenant uh, sacrificial system. Uh, Let's look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 15. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, verse 12, he entered once for all into the Holy of Holies, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For, but for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal, eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So having cleansed us by his very blood and mediating the new covenant, Christ has consecrated us to worship the triune God in a manner worthy of his holy name. Now you and I, covenant people, we worship the same God, Yahweh, like Solomon and Hezekiah of old. But our corporate worship, unlike theirs, is not restricted to the temple in Jerusalem. We are able to worship God in spirit and in truth. We're told in Holy Scripture, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. So God the Father, having redeemed us from our sins by his son's death, has consecrated our bodies to be the living temples of God for worship. In 2 Corinthians 6.16, Apostle Paul says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And Peter says, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession to proclaim his excellencies to a lost world. So having been consecrated by the blood of the lamb, we now present our bodies, not animals, 
as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship, not being conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind through the means of grace in our lives, the word, prayer, and communion of the saints. That was a lot to take in. We got a minute for any comments or questions. Otherwise, I will uh, end in prayer. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. What? What I had? Oh, uh, yeah. It it is a free app that you can get on your phone. Just. Oh, uh, it's not a, uh, a question and answer. It's just a statement. Yeah, it wasn't from the catechism. It's, it's a statement on yeah. But it's an app you can download on your phone if you're interested. Uh, just look up PCA, um, uh, what is it, Book of Church Order. Yeah. Yep. Yes. I'm going to go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time that we could spend together in studying your word. Lord, I pray that by your spirit that you would continue to move and work in our hearts to consecrate, your, consecrate ourselves as living sacrifices um, and worship your holy name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.